Okay, you're welcome to take your Bible, open it to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And today we're going to start with a, a new mini-series um, about ultimate realities. Uh, this will be a series right before we um, study the book of Proverbs, Lord willing, um, in February or closer in the middle of February. And the idea of this series is to look at these texts or realities, doctrines, that really define everything we look at, the way we think, the way we live, and the first one we will look at together is the, the reality of hell, the doctrine of hell, and how that should, if this is a reality, how this should shape us, how this should make you think, how this should make you live your life as a Christian. So that's really my hope for all of us, is as we study these texts together in context, that we will live like Christians and think like Christians. So let's read the text together. And then we'll dive in. So this is Luke 16 from verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are humble and dependent upon you to help us understand this text. Lord, these realities are far greater than we have the capacity to understand. But Lord, please be merciful to us. Use this text and your Holy Spirit to kindle again our fear of you, our love for the lost, and to draw us to Christ. Please be merciful and help us in this, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if hell is real, then you and I need to think about it, and change the way we live our lives in the light of that great reality. And I would guess, if I were to guess, hell is not a topic that is one of our favorite topics to either think about or talk about. Not only does the world completely ignore this topic, but many Christians do as well. In most cases, our understanding of hell is just non-existent because we never talk about it. And I think one of the main reasons for that is our love affair with comfort. We hate feeling uncomfortable in any way. And to be honest, the idea of 
people going to hell is just too much to bear intellectually and emotionally for us. But if we want to think rightly about this reality, it has to start with the basic observation that Jesus, the most loving, most gracious, gentle, and holy man that ever lived, spoke more about hell than about heaven. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Jesus speaks more about hell than anybody else in the entire Bible. Why? Why is that? Because no man has ever loved like this man loved. No man has greater authority to teach us what hell will be like than Jesus because he is God. He knows. This reality is worth talking about and even warning other people about because it is such a horrific reality. And that is exactly what we find in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, some have even doubted whether this is a parable or not because of that unique feature that Jesus calls the poor man Lazarus. Normally, Jesus doesn't give people names in his parables, but in this case, he gives him a name. And I think there will be a reason for that we'll look later. Now, whether it's a parable or not, the reality it communicates is real. The main point still remains. Jesus is warning his audience, and we'll find out who that audience is. So, But to look at that, we first have to look at where we are in the context of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's Gospel, from chapters 13 up until about chapter 17, is a long extended section where Jesus confronts the Pharisees. He's headbutting with them. There's a conflict with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were upset that Jesus showed compassion on the Sabbath. Remember chapter 15 of Luke the Pharisees were upset that the sinners and tax collectors came to him and he ate with them. And then we find those beautiful three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. In this section, again, the conflict with the Pharisees is about their love with money. We'll see that now. That's the twin theme that comes up over and over again in this section is the Pharisees' attitude towards the poor and the lost and their attitude towards money. In chapter 16, Jesus has just told the parable of the shrewd manager, and he concluded that parable in verse 13. Just look at verse 13, where he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this is a simple point. Jesus says you cannot be divided in your devotion or commitment to God. Many people have tried that. They've tried the experiment to try to serve both God and money. They tried to be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. They tried to have both money as their master as well as God as their master. I love how J.C. Riles um, writes about this. He says, they, these people have too much religion to be happy in the world, and they have too much of the world in their hearts to be happy in, in their religion. They are just miserable wrecks because they are torn between their two masters. Jesus wants you and me to be free from the love of money. Because as my good pastor friend said, money is a good servant, but a terrible master. Money is a good servant, but it's a terrible master. Jesus wants to be your master, and he wants you to be the master of money. But the Pharisees disagreed. Look at verse 14. So verse 14 in chapter 16 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. 
That ridicule is the same mocking later in the gospel where they would mock him on the cross and said, he saved others, he can't save himself. This is a, a jeering mock. Really, Jesus, don't you know that we get it right? We can serve both God and money. Haven't you seen us? I mean, we are the proof, the Pharisees probably said, right? They were really justifying themselves. They said, no, no, Jesus, not us. We are righteous. We can love God and money at the same time. But Jesus cuts right at the heart in the next verse, in verse 15. He says, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This was the Pharisees' biggest problem. They thought that God was impressed with the things which impresses men. Money, fame, religious activity, and status. Now, in this historical culture, as it is many, even in our culture, it was a very exalted thing to be rich. For many of them, that was the undeniable proof that God loves you, that God has favored you, and that you are right with God. But no, God looks at the heart. What is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. And the story of the rich man and Lazarus will illustrate this very point in a very graphic way. As a warning to the Pharisees and to all of us as well. So verse 19, Jesus begins by saying, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Notice a few things with me. This man is living a luxurious self-indulgent life of comfort, being clothed in purple and linen. Fine linen was a privilege only the very rich could enjoy. And he could afford to feast when? Did you notice how often he feasted? It says he feasted sumptuously every day. This wasn't just a Christmas feast or a, you know, or a birthday party feast. This man could afford to feast every single day. That's how rich he was. It's also clear that this man was religious as well. Because later, when we read later on, he calls Abraham what? Father Abraham. That's what a Jew would say. And then when Abraham speaks to him later, he says, they have the law and the prophets. So this wasn't just a rich man. This was also a religious man, a good man, if I could put it in quotation marks. Surely this man is right with God. All the boxes are ticked. But then we read verse 20 in contrast. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. I think why Jesus names this man Lazarus is because of the meaning of the name Lazarus. Lazarus comes from the Hebrew word Eliezer, which means God helps. God will help. You see how ironic that is. If you would have seen this man lying at the gate, does it look like God helps him? Look at how pathetic that man is. Homeless, covered with sores, longing to be fed with even the crumbs or the leftovers of the daily feast and being licked by dogs. Now, this isn't your household pets. These are the street dogs, the unclean animals. The Pharisees would have considered this man unclean and forsaken by God. The proof would be his life circumstances. I mean, look at his life. If God was for him, if God is his helper, where is he? 
Much like, like Job's friends, they would have concluded that be, you are suffering because God has forsaken you. You have done something wrong. There's some sin in your life. I want to ask all of you this very question. If you were to see these two people in real life, which one would you have thought is really loved by God most? Now, that's an unfair question because you know the rest of the story, right? <laughs> you know kind of what the right answer is. But imagine you didn't know. Which one do you think was loved by God? And secondly, which one would you have chosen to be? Now, if you're honest, I think most of us would be inclined, just like the Pharisees, to think, but I want to be that rich man who, who has all of his needs met. And it is, not, is it not natural to think that when things go wrong in our lives, that that is the proof that God doesn't love us? That is such a human way to think. And then Jesus pulls back the curtains and he shows us the reality behind the scenes when they enter into their eternal destinies. Look at verse 22 to 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Both men die, and the contrast between them is just as stark as it was when they were alive. That poor man who was licked by dogs probably died like a dog. Did you notice the text doesn't say he was buried? It just says the rich man was buried, he died, and I think that omission is intentional. Like a dog, like a nothing, like a cast-out piece of rubbish, that man passed away. Nobody cared, nobody noticed. The rich man also died, but the text says he was buried. Now, can you try, now try and imagine how his burial was. There was probably an earthly procession of very important people praising him. Honoring him. Can you imagine what was said at his funeral? What an amazing man. The Lord often picks his best flowers first. The Lord needed him. The Lord had too, many, too few angels, so he had to bring another angel home. Today, this is a very common thing, right? Doesn't matter how you live. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter when you die, boom, you're in heaven. The Roman Catholics believe we are justified by faith plus merit. Protestants believe we're justified by faith alone. But the world believes we are justified by death. The moment you die, magically all your sins are washed away. Suddenly you are justified. You are okay. Don't you hear this a lot at funerals? Someone showed no sign that they loved God, loved the Bible, loved holiness, loved God's people. The moment they die, he or she is in a better place. Hell is ignored. Again, because I think it's too uncomfortable to think about. But Jesus shows us that the situation was exactly the opposite. On earth, there was a procession, but there was also a procession in heaven. The angels carried Lazarus to the side of Abraham. This, can you picture the heavenly procession of angels carrying this, this nothing like a dog kind of a man to heaven? What a contrast. 
Not only did we receive this beautiful, special, angelic procession, I like it that the text says he, wa- he went to the side of Abraham. In the Greek it says, into the bosom of Abraham. You can imagine Abraham um, wrapping his arms around him. Now one thing I was wondering, why doesn't it say into the Lord's presence? Why did it say into Abraham's presence? Well, remember for a Jew, if you were in the bosom of Abraham, that would have been one of the highest saints imaginable in heaven comforting you. So you get this idea that even the least of God's saints is worthy of that dignity, of that honor, to be equal with Abraham because he had the faith of Abraham. So the Lazarus didn't have to wait in a long queue, a long row of thousands of people before he could even look at Abraham. No, he was there in his arms, equal to him. You see, you see even though he was discarded as rubbish, we see here the special care God has for even the least of his children, the least of his saints. Jesus, as the good shepherd, loses none of his sheep. They are never forgotten by him. They are written on his palms forever. He laid down his life for them. Beloved, I wish I could open your eyes right now to make you see how much God loves you. I wish I could open the eyes of your heart to show you that he loves you despite your circumstances that your circumstances are not the proof or the evidence that he has forsaken you. It is God's love for you is not based on how big your bank account is or even what other people think about you or how other people treat you. He loves you always. Nothing will ever be able to separate you from his love. Even if you die like a dog, the angels will carry your precious soul into paradise with all the saints into the immediate presence of Christ, the Father, the angels, and the saints. That is a lesson you and I should take away from this parable. But that's not the main point. The warning is the main point. The rich man went to hell. It was irrelevant how other people treated him on earth. It was irrelevant what people said at his funeral. He was not saved. So all the money in the world did not matter one bit. All the accomplishments he had achieved on earth meant zero. Imagine what he could have tried to say to God, but but Lord, don't you know that I was very rich? Lord, look how I feasted every day. Surely you will know I'm an important person. And God would say, and don't you know that what is exalted among men is an abomination before God. I look at the heart. You are mentioning all the things that would impress people. You did not mention anything that impresses me. Remember how many people on judgment day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty miracles? Did we not prophesy in your name? Then Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see what these people were trying to do with Jesus? Jesus, look at all the impressive things that we did that impressed people. These miracles, these prophecies, they were impressive to other people. But that's not what God looks at. He looks at the heart. He looks at those times in private prayer when nobody sees you praying. And your reward will be in heaven. 
He sees those times when you forgive others as God has forgiven you. He sees those times when you cut off your hand and pluck out your eye so that you will not lust anymore. Those are the things which God is looking for. That is the will of the Father. Prayer, reading our Bibles, righteousness, faith, love, holiness, these are the things we are to pursue. To young Timothy, remember what, he, what Paul wrote, Timothy, flee the love of money and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the things which a heart that is saved by grace will pursue and love. And because the wages of sin is death, God will judge and punish evildoers by casting them into the lake of fire, into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is where the rich man found himself. And next, Jesus is going to show us what hell is like. And we will do well to take his word seriously. Look at verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This is a small observation. Notice that even in hell, he has the audacity to want Lazarus to serve him. He still wants Lazarus to do his bidding. He's still proud. That's one of the, rea the sad realities of hell, that in hell, people won't suddenly change. They will continue to sin against God. They will have still the ugly character they had on earth and will grow worse. But what he's asking is, uh, is horrific. The suffering and the anguish in hell is so much that a drop of water will be a relief. Yet he won't receive any mercy. And it's ironic that he wants mercy now. When he showed no mercy to Lazarus on earth. He wants a drop of water while Lazarus couldn't have the crumbs from his table. Remember what Jesus told us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And James switches it around in James 2 and he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law, for judgment is without mercy to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For those who have shown no mercy while they are alive will be shown no mercy when they are judged by God. Abraham replied in this way. Look at verse 25. He says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The time of mercy is over. After death, there's nothing more to be done. There's no good thing you can expect from God once you have rejected him, the gospel, and Jesus. Abraham basically says, you already had your comfort. Now it is taken away from you. Lazarus had nothing. Now he is comforted. I think the emphasis here is just to show the reversal that has happened. There was a total reversal in their end destinies. It would be a mistake to think Jesus is saying here, if you are poor, you will go to heaven, and if you are rich, you'll go to hell. That would be a misreading of this text. That would be the same mistake the Pharisees made on the opposite direction, that it is exalted among men to be poor. No, don't make the same mistake on the opposite side. It's not money that is the problem. The love of money is the root of evil, of all evil. This is what was wrong with the Pharisees. They thought they could serve two masters. They thought they could be greedy and love God at the same time. They thought they could buy heaven and bribe God. So the question is not whether you are rich or poor, but whether or not you have repented from your sins 
and put your trust in Jesus alone to save you. There's only one way to be saved, and it's not by anything you can do or buy with money. God in love has sent his only son to die for our sins. He suffered the wrath of God on the cross so that all who will believe in him will never be cast into eternal hell but have eternal life. It is about the heart. Have you abandoned your self-righteousness, trusting in yourself, trusting in your money, trusting in your performance, your good works, your own way of trying to commend yourself to God? And then have you also turned to Jesus, turned to him to be your righteousness, to be your savior? That's the only escape, the only way to avoid God's wrath in hell. For there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you do not cling to Christ, if you do not flee from the wrath to come and trust in him, the warning of this passage is that your destiny in hell is irreversible. Look at verse 26. Abraham says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This refutes a couple of misconceptions about hell. Some believe that when you die, you will enter into a kind of soul sleep. You'll just be unconscious or wait for the day of judgment. No, we see the moment of death, you are either awake in paradise or awake in hell. Some believe that there won't be a hell because this life is hell enough. So they deny a hell after life because people already have hell on earth. They say that's enough punishment. Wrong again. Here we see that only after they died, they went to their eternal destinies. Still others believe God is so rich in mercy. Those who die will have another chance to repent after they've died. Wrong. Abraham said there is no way for those in hell to come across. The rich man's position is fixed. Hebrews 9.27, a well-known verse, is just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. No second chances. Death is final, and your destiny then eternal. Yet others believe that maybe at some future point, all will be saved. Eventually. That is called universalism. Now, this is refuted by this passage, but also by many other passages. Let me just mention the one, I think a very key passage is Mark 14, verse 21. Jesus speaks of Judas Iscariot, and he says, For the Son of Man goes, that is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, think about it. If all people eventually go to heaven then it would have been better for Judas to be born because then he would have eventually gone to heaven for all of eternity. But if heaven is really eternal, then Jesus' words are true. It's better to not have been born than to go to hell. And lastly, this also refutes what we call annihilationism, the idea that those who go to hell will cease to exist. They will be destroyed. They, that's the second death or whatever words they try to put on that to say, see, people go there, but then they just cease to exist, or after a while, they cease to exist. The same passage we just read about Judas refutes that as well. It would have been better for him not to have been born. You see, non-existence here is not better than non-existence there. So hell is eternal. That's why it would have been better for Judas if he wasn't born, 
Matthew 25, verse 46 says, These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you see the parallel there? There's a contrast between eternal life and eternal punishment. Just as eternal life never ends, in the same way eternal punishment never ends. Revelations 14, 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Do you see the language here? They have no rest. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no escape. Jesus uses language like their worm does not die or they will be cast into unquenchable fire. You see, those are not pictures of going and then dying and ceasing to exist. That's pictures that they, that's, their suffering will never end. Beloved, this is the truth. Jesus loves you by telling you the truth about hell. You see, if this is a reality, it's one of the most loving things you can do to tell and warn people about that place. That is meant to shock you, to wake you up, to take this warning seriously. The last section of the parable is worth noting, and then we'll close with some applications. So let's read verse 27 to 28. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You see, what is the proper reaction to hell? Warn them. Suddenly, the rich man became a missionary. Send people that they may warn them. Warn my family, warn my brothers, that they won't come here, Lord. Father Abraham. Ironically, Jesus is warning the Pharisees in this very parable. He's warning them right there, right then. Listen, this place is real. Verse 29 reads, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is a common way to think today. Father Abraham, if they will just have more evidence, more proof, although they have all the light of the Bible, all the light of what you have done, all that evidence, but that's not enough, give them more evidence, more proof. Then they will believe. This makes the classic mistake that their main problem is intellectual in nature, that people have an intellectual issue. That's why they struggle. While the Bible teaches, no, it's because people have a moral issue. Their hearts are hardened. That no matter what you do, I don't know if, if you've, if you've um, watched some of these interviews with atheists and they would ask them, what would convince you that God exists? And their answer is so surprising, right? People that are so open for evidence and so open, like no evidence will, will, will convince me. If I find evidence, I'll probably, probably think I'm hallucinating. Their hearts are hardened. The law and the prophets obviously refers to the Old Testament scriptures. There's enough proof and evidence there to show us Jesus is the only way. If you've received this light, that is the time to repent and believe. The moment you hear the gospel is the moment you should react and respond. And ultimately, the Bible, the word of God is the power of God unto salvation. It's through the word of God that we are born again to a living hope. 
The word is the effective means of salvation. If you harden your heart, there is no guarantee that you will find other evidence compelling. Here's another irony of this passage. There was a literal Lazarus that died, that was raised by Jesus. And the Pharisees saw. Jesus even gave them that. And yet they did not believe. Yet, miracles are not a guarantee that people will be convinced. God must work in our hearts by his Holy Spirit to cause us to be born again, to open our eyes. Until then, no one will believe. Consider this for yourself. You at this very moment also are hearing the law and the prophets. You are hearing the words of Christ. You have right now the opportunity not to close your heart to it, but to respond today as if you hear his voice. Today is the day of salvation. Today you come to Christ. What a mercy God gives you right now. Allow me, allow me to close with a few applications from this parable. Firstly, the main point is this. Stop thinking like the world thinks with regards to what is important in life. It is not important to have a lot of money, to have high status, and to, find, to receive the accolades of the world. What God thinks of you is all that matters. He looks at your heart. Even if you die like Lazarus, won't you take his place? If you knew he was saved and he would go to heaven. But the world would have seen him as a waste of life. So change the way you think about what is important in life. It's not money. It's not these external things. It's our hearts before God. Secondly, the doctrine of hell should ironically make you glad and thankful for every single thing you have. If the rich man would have been thankful for a drop of water, should you not be thankful for a glass of water? Should you not be thankful for any breath you have? Any time you are not in hell, at this very moment, all of us should be in hell. And yet you feel the sunshine, the, the air around you. You are alive. What a mercy. What a reason to be thankful to God for. So in one sense, it really doesn't matter how bad you think life gets. It's always better than going to hell. That's one reason to always be thankful for everything you have. Thirdly, the doctrine of hell should wake you up on the seriousness of your sin. Jesus would often use hell as a reason to stop sinning. He says, if, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out, for it is better to go into life lame and blind and to go to hell with two eyes and two hands. Hell is real and all those who are unwilling to leave their sin will go there. All those who have made a compromise with their sin shows the heart of an unrepented heart, a dead heart. Don't think lightly of your sin. Kill it. Don't think that I'll, it's okay because there's always grace to cover my sin so I can just keep on sinning. That's the very language of someone going to hell. Don't think like that. Do whatever you must to put your sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And lastly, the last application is this. As long as you are alive, you and I have hope. The reason the rich man wanted Lazarus to go to his brothers is because there was still hope for them to be saved. They were not dead yet. They are still alive, and therefore they still have a chance to repent. For the rich man, it was over. He stopped asking things for himself because he knew he was hopeless. His fate was sealed. Beloved, this should make you run to Christ. This should make you plead with others who do not know Christ. Spare nothing to save one soul. Don't spare your money. Don't spare your comfort. Don't spare your convenience. No effort is too big to snatch people out of hell, to warn them, to reach them, to show them that there's a way to be saved, to escape. Right? And this also shows us the urgency of missions. Why is mission so important? If hell was not real, if hell was temporary, if anyone who follows their own religion will go to heaven, then missions dies. Why tell others about Jesus if they are already fine on their own? If they are already okay and already going to heaven? But the truth is there's only one way to be saved. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. There is no other what given among men? Name. They need to know the name to be saved. That is why missions exist. That's why missionaries are sent. And we must support them with every prayer, every rand we have to show people that there's a way of escape. That's why you and I should never see it as a wasted life for people to go to the mission field and just die there. I've heard people say that. I got so upset when people said, when people went to like these cannibals and they were just slaughtered and they would die, they die. It's like, how, they just wasted their lives. I was so angry because I felt like you don't, you're not thinking biblically. God often saves people by the death of his saints. Let us be a church that has a burden for the lost, not just in Pochestrua, but for the world, for the unreached people groups, that they too will hear the good news. So here is the truth taught to us by the most loving man who ever lived in a parable of hell. What will you do with his words? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess our, our, the capacity of our hearts. It's too small to comprehend, to, to grasp this reality of hell and its eternality. Lord, forgive us for our comfort-loving, convenience-seeking lives where we don't care about our neighbors next door, our colleagues, our friends, our family members who do not know you, that we are content to go to heaven on our own without these people being warned of your grace and your love and the only way of escape. Father, for, for, for those of us here who who still harden their hearts, who still do not want to believe and follow you. Lord, please soften their hearts right now. Help them, draw them to Christ, show them his love for them. 
And for us as believers, Lord, thank you that you have opened our eyes, that you have plucked us from the fire, Lord, and saved us and brought us into your family, into your kingdom. But Lord, we are here to work, to go, to reach the lost at all cost in your wisdom and in your time, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this, this story, your word, that shows us the truth. May we believe it and live it out in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.